You, you can holler, you can applaud, you can scream, you can do anything you want. I can't hear you anyway. <laughs> Welcome to the Salt Lake Dirt Podcast. I'm your host, Kyler Bingham. Today on the show, I welcome writer Daniel Paisner. His new novel, Balloon Dog, is uh, about an art heist that takes place in Park City, Utah. Very cool book, very fun. Uh, really enjoyed talking to him. Highly recommend the book. Uh, great read. He also has a very cool podcast that I started listening to after we got the chance to talk. The podcast is called As Told To. Uh, it's about ghostwriting and ghostwriting as a career. Very fascinating stuff. Uh, Dan has been involved in ghostwriting for for decades now. Uh, has worked with all kinds of people: uh, Serena Williams, Whoopi Goldberg, Denzel Washington, Gilbert Gottfried, Anthony Quinn, uh, and it goes on and on. So that was a really interesting part of of this interview and just hearing about his process. Um, of being a ghostwriter, and then also how he works on his novels. Um, love the conversation. Would love to have him back on the show at some point. Daniel Paisner, check the book out. It is called Balloon Dog. You're listening to Salt Lake Dirt. We're here to talk about his new book, Balloon Dog, which I loved very much. It was uh, such a such a fun read and it has this uh, connection to Utah. I don't have a lot of people on the show that um, have even been here. So it's really cool to talk to someone who knows the the interesting, odd, fun culture that is Utah. Dan, thank you so much, so much for being here. Kyler, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. Absolutely. So I, I guess um, the novel just came out a few months ago and I and one of the one of the main characters he lives in the Sugar House neighborhood of Salt Lake, and uh, he frequently goes up to Park City for work. And then that's kind of um, without spoiling anything. That's you know there's a big focus focal point, uh, Park City, the colony specifically, which I know I know fairly well. My my wife used to clean homes up there, so oh yeah, okay, I, I, I know I know the area and I know the the, the level of wealth. Uh, that is there and just kind of um, how so many people that these are these are not their their main homes they have <laughs> they have homes all over the place so I would just you know I feel like we have a lot to talk about but I'm, I'm really curious um, it, it was cool reading a book that took place in this area I don't know if I've read a, a, a novel before that that hits these places and, and made it so um, you know it was so real visually exciting just really curious about um, kind of the genesis of the book itself and then your connection to Utah. Well, I guess it is the, the great Utah art heist novel, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's not a whole lot, not a whole lot of competition. <laughs> very specific genre. <laughs> right. Very specific genre. Well, look, I mean, I, I guess they tell uh, all writers to, to write what they know. And I live part time in Utah and I was looking for a place to set this story. The story is about the uh, theft of an industrial size Jeff Koons balloon dog sculpture that's lifted um, off of the front lawn of one of those gargantuan homes at, at the colony that somebody lives in for, you know, six days out of the year. Um, and they've got 20,000 square feet and massive works of art that nobody gets to see and enjoy. And it seemed to me the perfect jumping off point for a novel that asks readers to reflect a little bit on the value and the nature of art. How do we decide what to behold and what to prize and what to value when it comes to great works of art, whether that's a sculpture or a work of fiction or a or a, a piece of music, um, who who decides um, what value to place on these things and how we are meant to enjoy them? Yeah, and I think um, you know if any if anyone is not familiar with the the balloon dog sculptures uh, of Coons, definitely look those up. Those are um, pr pretty amazing, and I, I've never seen one in person. How but how massive? Just when I was like doing some research online, how massive these things are, and. Um, and, and the art heist itself, just the the, the amount of uh, planning and, and work that went into this thing. And 
um, I think that what what struck me is how in, in the book, and I'm, I'm curious. I'd imagine this is probably uh, some truth to this: the the storage of all the art and how they, um, you know, in in the book's case, how they had to drive it down um, into a suburb outside of Salt Lake, Bountiful, Utah. Uh, these ma- like a massive warehouse that stored, the, you know, these priceless pieces of um, of art that, yeah, like you said, no one, no one really sees. Uh, so no I, one really sees. So not only did they not see it when it's stored and hauled away, but they didn't even see it when it was in its natural habitat installed by the side of a mountain that the homeowner really is probably only in for a couple of weeks out of the year. So um, and the Coons sculpture itself just struck me as this kind of ubiquitous symbol of you know the very best or the very worst of of pop art it's it's kind of like the smiley face uh, of of our times it's everywhere and you can see small versions of this balloon dog on people's mantles you can Mm -hmm. see little kitsch items in souvenir stands you know um and then you see these enormous massive industrial size installations that are worth tens of millions of dollars. And you kind of wonder what the hell it is that we're looking at and what we're <laughs> celebrating because they're just balloon dogs, you know, <laughs> that, you know, you can hire a clown for your kid's birthday party and he'll, he'll make a couple of dozen of them for you for 50 bucks. Yeah. Uh, my wife was walking one of our dogs just in our very modest neighborhood of Rose park and, you know, outside of salt Lake. And, and I was telling her about the book and, and she's like, I saw one at like a small, like a small one, you know, um, like a decent size one, but you know, the size of a, maybe a, a large real dog in someone's yard out here. So yeah, they're, they're, they're everywhere. And it is, uh, who, who attaches the, the meaning to this and, um, and it, yeah, just the, the amount of wealth. I think that's what I really struck me. Cause I, I, you know, I go to Sundance every year and my, like I said, my wife used to work up in park city. Um, so just that, that that world up there is so separate well from for most of us definitely uh but in in utah i think people who aren't familiar with the place you know there's the stereotypes there's perceptions um i've i've moved out of the state a couple times and when you when you mention utah everyone has like a joke to to throw your way um like how many wives do you have or whatever but it is um, there. There's so much nuance to the place, and I think you captured that well in the novel. Well, thank you. I'm glad. To, <laughs> first of all, I'm glad you took the time to read it, Kyler. I've done a lot yeah. of podcast interviews since this book has come out this summer, and you know, more than half the folks don't bother to read it. So, right. So good on you. Thank you. Well, absolutely. <laughs> a the, no, I a tip of the microphone. To you. I, thank uh, you. I owe that to you, and I think um, I I I love. And I, you know, the name, the, the names are escaping me, but just the, the varied level of, of characters in the book. And I, I love it. So like masterfully woven throughout, um, everyone's kind of, you know, living in a, in some respects, like an unsatisfied reality. Uh, and right. every, everyone is kind of broken in some <laughs> way. Um, and you know, when you think about it, not to put a too dark, uh, a brush on the way we work and live but most of the people i know are broken in in, <laughs> in some way or other in ways big and small sure. um you know we're living these lives of quiet desperation we're not quite grabbing at the brass ring that we set out to to grab uh when we were younger and i thought it was worth exploring you know what would happen if i set these four or five different characters in motion around this central story about this theft and look at the ways that maybe that brokenness can either start to heal or would cement itself in the lives of these people and they'd become you know permanently broken in those ways um so that was kind of the idea there's a a central bad guy who's really not such a bad guy but he's the guy who decides to steal Uh, he's to me the most interesting character uh in the book he's kind of thoughtful he works as an art hauler in and around the salt lake area in and out of this warehouse in bountiful which you know as your listeners will know it's a it's a real place but what a great place name especially (laughs) especially when you're setting a novel there that is all about the bounty that we have in our in our lives that we may or may not deserve and that we may or may not even 
appreciate. Um, and so I thought how interesting it would be for me as a writer to kind of set all these individuals in motion um, and have them swirl around this central story. Yeah, no, that, that, that was so cool. And I love when I read a book when you have, you have all these different characters and the, especially the beginning of the book kind of is, is setting it up and you're, you're getting to know their lives and their issues and, and, and things that, um, like you said, they didn't work out quite the way they they had had anticipated, and just to see it kind of like come together, uh, such a cool thing. And then, not to mention, like Bount so bountiful for those. They have a lot of California listeners. Um, that is, that's just north of Salt Lake City. That's where I do all my grocery shopping because I just hop right on the freeway, and it's actually, it's such a especially on Sunday. Oh man, it's great shopping to the stores that are open. It's just so dead up there. Uh, so a very like unassuming, just kind of, you know, people have ever driven through this area, I-15, they they probably have passed it and never even noticed. But the name itself, like, I never had even thought of it. And I, I grew up here. You just, you know, I took for granted. I'm like, yeah, Bountiful. That's such an interesting, you know, I had disconnected the name of the town with like the the meaning of the word itself. Right. Uh, that, that was just so interesting that was brought up in the book. Yeah, it's, I guess when you live there, it's part of your landscape, and yeah. you, you kind of take it for granted. It is what it is. Yeah. But when you're a part-timer like me, you're kind of on the outside looking in, it immediately jumps off the map and says, hey, yeah. notice me. This this means something. <laughs> and if you're a struggling, you know, widely underread novelist, you think, okay, I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna use that at some point in one of my widely underread novels. <laughs> Yeah. So I love, yeah, yeah, I read that on your site, your website, the widely under, I love that. Uh, so how did you end up out here part-time? I'm, I'm really curious about you're, you're from New York, correct? I'm from New York and I've, I've always been a skier and I've actually always come out to that region pretty much annually since, uh, I was a kid, since I was able to afford uh, a ski vacation every year. Uh, and it was kind of like my pilgrimage. And I, I, you know, raised my kids as skiers, but they were East Coast skiers. I didn't feel like wasting money on them and putting them on a plane. <laughs> we would we would just drive up to Vermont and I'd make them, you know, ski out of the parking lot like I, like I grew up skiing. <laughs> but, you know, more and more as my wife and I were getting a little bit older, we kept thinking, you know, gee, we really should think about, you know, maybe putting down some stakes out there. And we finally, about 10 years ago, uh, bought a place, not like a place at the canyons, just kind of a modest uh, condo in the Park City area and figured we'd try to spend more and more time there. And uh, <clears throat> lo and behold, COVID kind of gifted us the uh, time and our schedules to to work from there. So what started out going out there a week or two every here and there throughout the season, ski season, and then later into the summers, which have been a revelation. I mean, you talk about oh my gosh, Bountiful. Yeah. We We went out there as winter folks and the summers we've been charmed and blown away by the summers. but now all of a sudden we can go out for four or five six weeks at a stretch and we work there and it's not really a vacation so much as a change of venue so this book actually uh, was written uh, in park city uh, during the first covid summer back in 2020 i was kind of fishing oh, wow. around for a project and um, i got into this nice little groove where the story came to me and i sat down uh, on my deck every morning and you can sort of time when the snow cranes would come by and and say hello and and join me for my morning coffee while i was sitting around banging away this book well, what a beautiful place to to write i mean yeah it, it, i mean i just sometimes go up there because of the the air is so much it's clean up there right um you know and then when you get the inversion down here in in the valley it's just nice to get out of here and and breathe <laughs> yeah i mean there is a lot of that i actually had the experience this summer of driving across the mud flats i you know was during that um the whole uh, jam at the airports early on in the summer where everybody's flights were being canceled and i had a flight i was taking from tahoe to salt lake that was canceled i couldn't get another one so we just jumped in a car and drove 600 miles oh, wow. or whatever yeah. it is and you know it's sad it's really heartbreakingly sad to mm -hmm. see um you know what those mud flats are looking like these days oh my gosh the, i was just and yeah. what the not so great salt lake is looking like this year it's it's worrisome um and heartbreaking yeah a huge concern um out here you know i hear about it all the time and 
um i i drove out to uh elko just a couple months ago just to kind of get away with one of my one of my dogs and and write and i hadn't driven you know in that on on i-80 west for quite a while and i yeah i was shocked i mean i'd heard but just seeing it and driving past the salt lake and and um yeah kind of scary and then flying out you can get you can when you fly over you can see it so um yeah not to be a bummer but it, it's, it's it's a bummer and then and then you juxtapose that with you know park city which is only 30 miles away and it seems you know a little bit untouched by those concerns of course they're yeah. not getting the snowfall that they've gotten in years past although this year the early season dumps have been great i think this is the earliest uh those mountains have opened in the last 20 years there's been enough snowfall and and cold temperatures so you know skiers take heart but it, it's kind of hard to uh reconcile the fact that you have uh this kind of paradise just 30 miles away from the great salt lake that seems not yet bothered or touched by what's going on in the city yeah it definitely it, it's a different it's a different world up there um yeah definitely interesting so uh yeah that's so cool that you uh i'm always interested in people who who spend a lot of time out here because you know they they really get the sense of of the place and just like the you know the beauty of the landscape and that's one thing i love about living in utah is just you can drive um not you know not too far or you know not too long of a of a road trip and you'll see all these different kinds of landscapes it's all kind of like encapsulated in the in this one state you see so many different things you know you have the red rocks you have uh salt flats places like park city and different um, communities too you see different subsets of people too and and every community has a different kind of vibe and feel to it and even salt lake in the years that we've been going out there it seems to be kind of younger and hepper and mm -hmm. and uh things are going on there that are exciting they're great places to eat there's great music there's you know there's stuff to do that i wouldn't have thought of as yeah. an outsider 20 years ago thinking of moving to the region yeah well even to you know because I, like i said I, i'm i'm 40 and i gr i grew up here and I, I hated, I think that's a, you know, a lot of young people you hate where you grow up, but there are things I didn't like about it. Um, I left a couple of times, but I would say in the, yeah, in the last 10 years, especially it's really popped as a city. Um, and it, and it is like, it's, a, there's plenty, there's plenty to do. Right. Uh, great. Yeah. Great restaurants, great concerts, all kinds of cool things happening. So, um, yeah, it's not what a lot of people might expect. So I encourage anyone give it a, give it a shot don't move here but you know you give it a <laughs> come, give come it a visit shot. and spend your tourist dollars here and then leave right <laughs> there you go <laughs> my buddy i was just helping him the other day around the corner from me and he has a, a sticker on his car that says utah sucks don't move here <laughs> i like that <laughs> very nice yeah um so I, I i guess i i'm really intrigued and hopefully you're not sick of talking about it i'd imagine you're not because you have a podcast um on the on the subject but your career as a, as a ghostwriter is simply fascinating to me uh, and just the extent just looking at all the different books i was a bit blown away at some of the big names um that you've worked with i mean this is uh sounds like your bread and butter i'm really interested in how you got into that profession uh i mean it is my bread and butter that's sort of my principal livelihood it's it's writing of a kind you know i i I joke that I'm a struggling novelist, and I really am. I mean, these books, are, this is my fourth book. My books get published. Publishers seem to get smaller each time out. My readership gets smaller each time out. I don't know what the universe is telling me there. But but I'm able to subsidize that work, which is, you know, how I get my kicks and, and how I keep a smile on my face. I'm able to subsidize that work by the work I do as a ghostwriter. And that's kind of my day gig. Um, and I fell into that, I don't know, 30, 40 years ago, um, thinking it would be a one-off. You know, I was a freelance writer and it was a, a good gig. I caught my first assignment writing a book for Willard Scott, who was the weatherman on the Today Show mm -hmm. for Generation. And um, I was lucky to get that gig. But I looked at it as a, as a one-shot deal, the same way, you know, I'd, I'd try to win a, an assignment from the Times or the AP or the New York Post or wherever I was writing for. Uh, at the time as a freelancer, 
it was just a long form assignment. I never thought it would lead into the next long form assignment, but lo and behold, it did. And one book led to the next and I'm still doing it. Um, and work leads to work. It's the kind of business where you're judged by your credits. You know, you always, there's a catch 22. How do you get started? I hear from young writers all the time. They're wondering how to get a toehold as a ghostwriter or a collaborator and you need credits. You know, people don't want to take you to your first rodeo. They, <laughs> they'll throw in with you if you've, if you've been at it a time or two, but they don't want to be your first. Um, so I was lucky that I got Willard to let me um, uh, pop my cherry. And after that, the work kept coming. And I've worked with a lot of interesting people, many people I work with again and again. If you look at my um, uh, list of books, I've, I've done several books with Damon John, for example, from Shark Tank. I've done several books with John Kasich, the former governor from Ohio. I've done several books with Ron Darling, who used to pitch for the New York Mets, and he now calls games for the Mets and for Major League Baseball. So um, it's been a great way to make a living as a writer, while at the same time giving me the freedom to pursue some of my own stuff. Yeah, and how did the how did the podcast come about? Um, I just so I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but I, I just added it. So tomorrow my commute, it's uh, it's first up. So uh, what kind of what kind of got you? To decide to do a podcast you know there aren't a whole lot of us ghostwriter types when i started out there were really just a handful now i'd say there are you know maybe a couple of dozen folks who who really make a living doing this and have made it a career um, and many of us gather every once in a while there's a group of us that meets over zoom once a month and we chat and we swap war stories and compare trade secrets or we just and moan to each other about, you know, woe is us. And yeah, we're kind of the second class citizens of, uh, of the writing community. Um, but there were interesting conversations happening in this private space. And I thought, you know what, I interview people for a living. My job, one of my skills, I guess, as a ghostwriter is I'm able to tease out stories from people in such a way that I'm able to transpose their stories onto the page. So why not run a microphone and see if there's an interesting long form ongoing conversation to had to be had with other writers who make their principal living writing on behalf of someone else. Um, so the conceit of the show started out thinking I would just talk to other traditional ghostwriters. The, the podcast is called As Told To. That used to be the standard credit back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s when ghostwriters first started coming out of the shadows and getting acknowledged on the book jackets. Our credit typically was As Told To. Um, the idea being that whoever the famous person was was just simply dictating this story, and we were the steno girls who were taking down <laughs> the story. Um, now the uh, conventional credit tends to be a with credit or still no credit at all. Mm -hmm. um, but so that started out as the idea, and, and we've grown the concept since we started to include all writers who write for others, speech writers, joke writers, songwriters, you know, a lot of singer-songwriters find a way to sustain themselves and make a living as musicians by writing songs that other people record, and they make bank on those recordings uh, while they're trying to gain some footing uh, in their own careers. So I, I think there's an interesting journey that writers go through as they're trying to find their voice and to find their own way as writers that often leads them to write for other people. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always been in, in intrigued with with the whole profession, and and like you said, I'm one of those people asking. Like, I I, I had no clue how people um, even got into it. So I'm I'm really just interested in hearing the stories of the of the folks who you know who who do this, and it, it's like it's like the ego is is or has to be submerged when when you're working on someone else you're doing all this work and you're you're writing and you're writing um as someone else um that's that's such a fascinating thing to me that um you you have to i would imagine adapt to every project you're working on i mean just looking at the the list of of people that you've worked with like widely like like massively different kinds of people um, and that's what kind of struck me, you know, it's like we, uh, Whoopi Goldberg, Denzel Washington, Gilbert Gottfried, you know, uh, 
So yeah, it, it just was. It not just exactly, kinda, not exactly the kind of people you'd find at the same dinner party. Exactly. Right? <laughs> so I'm just like, it, it just it, it amazes me that that someone goes in and and I, clearly you're able to work well. You're able to play well with others. I play well with others, and and you know I'm interested in inserting myself in to the lives of of other people who are doing something that's wholly other from what it is I've done or what it is that I know. And I try not to repeat myself. I think one of the reasons why you see such an eclectic mix of people here. I mean, there are are there are musicians, there are politicians, there are actors, there are athletes, there are business and thought leaders. I, I try to mix it up and and keep things interesting. Life is is too short to uh, to dip your toe in the same waters time and time again. So um, I try to bounce around a little bit, and that's one of the great luxuries of this job. And as you said earlier, you really can't have an ego. There's no room for ego here. This is not about me. I'm writing in service of their story, and I've been fortunate enough now that I've had some success in this arena where I can now pick and choose so that if I disagree you know, ideologically with somebody, I don't have to write their book. There was a time in my career where I did work with people who um, whose views I did not share. Um, and that was fine. You know, I've written, I'm a liberal Jew from New York, who's now half of a transplant in, in Utah, right? <laughs> you hear that and, every day. <laughs> you know, that's right. It's an odd mix. But, you know, I've written books for conservative Republicans. I've written books for all kinds of people from different backgrounds. And that I try not to let that get in the way of the choices I make about the projects that I take on. Um, and I also kind of make it clear to the people I'm going to work with. You know, I probably talk myself out of a lot of gigs that <laughs> might come my way. You know, there are a lot of I've, I've worked on very sensitive personal stories, stories of abuse, um, all kinds of things where, you know, if I'm talking to a woman, I might say, look, you might be more comfortable working with another woman, mm -hmm. uh, even though we're getting along well in this initial conversation, you should think ahead a little bit and think, do you want to share these intimate details with me? <laughs> Maybe there's somebody else. <laughs> you know, there are a lot of writers who can do this kind of work. Um, and the key piece here really is the hang. You need to be able to get along with these folks and they need to be able to be to, to be made to feel comfortable enough around you that they can open up and share with you. It's a very intimate transaction. When you think about the books you read, um, you know, it, it, you're, it, you're, it's kind of a naked transaction. You can really see that person for who they are. You think of where you and how you read. You read in the bathtub, you read in bed, you read on the shore, right? <laughs> it, it, and you really get a chance to see people as they are. And if it feels like it's coming through with a filter or that it's being told, through a ghostwriter, um, it it changes that level of intimacy a little bit, and it puts it at some remove where maybe the book doesn't resonate as fully as it might or as it should. Interesting. I, I know. Well, just from you know, so the the balloon dog is the only one I've read of yours. I'm I'm really interested in reading more. Um, and every... Please do. I'll, I'll get you the volume discount, Kyler. You know, <laughs> <laughs> next time in town, I'll I'll, yeah. I'll drop off a, I'll drop off a bunch. <laughs> Heck yeah! <laughs> uh, I well, that's what struck me. Just you, you kind of touched it. The, the writers that I've really enjoyed chatting with and reading their work, the ones who've been on the show, um, when I get to actually meet them, there's this, you know, no matter their age, their background, whatever, there's this very strong sense of curiosity. And that, you know, I had never really thought about that before, but it just makes so much sense. And it is it is really um, fascinating to to meet people who are so curious, because I think sometimes in you know my day to day life, I don't have the luxury of meeting people who ask questions or who are interested in other people. So it, it, it's really cool. Uh, and, it, and it comes across on the page. I think that's that's like that's very clear to me after talking to so many people who are curious uh it works and it, you know it, it's a it's an enjoyable read so i i'm yeah i'm just just a compliment there i, I love the curiosity well, you, angle sir. that's so cool I, I oh go ahead sorry no no you go ahead good i was just i was curious like just because i know nothing about th this profession how uh, you even 
say you you get a project and you, you know you have all these you know wide variety of people where do you even start in the process of it do you have a specific i would imagine a deadline that you have to get stuff turned in what is your first plan of attack or is does it is it different every time is it does it depend well, on the person uh, I think it really, every project is different. Usually you're there because this person has done or seen or experienced something that's book worthy. And that usually means that there's a calendar that comes uh, along with that. The, the, whatever that 15 minutes worth of fame is, however long that window is, you've got to bust your butt and try to get that book out onto bookshelves before that window closes. So in many ways that informs your deadline. So for example, if I'm working with an Olympic athlete, um, the idea is to come in as close to that Olympic cycle after he or she has made a splash and won a bunch of gold medals, you got to come out before people forget who they are. Or, or maybe the strategy is you come out uh, on the cusp of the next Olympic Games when they're looking to defend. So you sort of figure out what your timetable is based on who that person is and what the size and shape of their celebrity is. And then you, you can't really hit the ground running until you do a certain amount of research. I need to know who these people are, what they're about, what their backstory is, what the message of the book really is before we roll up our sleeves and have added on day one. So I got to do a certain amount of that lift on my own before we ever get together and begin work. And then, you know, everybody, like you said, it's, it's different. Sometimes we we work through their stories uh, orally and they I sit down with a tape recorder and we just, you know, we talk uh, and, and maybe we talk chronologically and we work through the stuff of their life from day one to day most recent. Or, or sometimes we write from the middle out, you know, maybe there's one pivotal moment that has brought them into this limelight and we write that moment first and then we figure out, you know, how to set up that part of the story and how to come away from that part of the story. So every one is different. Um, I've worked with people who consider themselves writers. And when I find that that's the case, I try to embrace that. I want those people to be able to put this book out into the world and feel a pride of authorship, even though I might be, I might be the schmuck in his underwear actually banging on the keyboard. <laughs> but their contribution is writing of a kind. The, everything that's on the page comes from them. So we all write in different ways. They're creating that narrative. We're capturing their voice and setting it down on paper together. So they should feel um, that pride of authorship. And then I've worked with others who really don't give a shit about being writers at all. Some of them don't even take the time uh, to read it. I had a guy on my show, a very talented young collaborator named Neil Martinez Belkin, whose first two books out of the gate uh, we're both New York Times bestsellers, one with the rapper Gucci Mane and one with the rapper Rick Ross. Mm -hmm. And Rick Ross very famously and proudly walks around saying he hasn't even read his book. His book's been on the New York Times bestseller <laughs> list. It's in hardcovers. It's in bookstores. And he hasn't read it. And he's proud of that fact. But meanwhile, it carries his byline. It's written in his first person. So everybody goes at this differently. Um, and, you know, you can't. If I went in with a set uh, of expectations about how the project would go, as often as not, we'd, we'd get nowhere. So you kind of have to be flexible and fluid and, and, and go with the flow. Just like fill out the person and, yeah. and see, see where they're at. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of like the, how you are probably in the different friendships that you have in your life. You know, you probably have different people who you talk to one way and another set of people you talk to sure. another way and you each get something from each other and out of those relationships but every one of those relationships is different and the way you communicate with those people is different and it's the same here and the end game is to produce a book that will engage a reader who doesn't know either one of you but um you try to find a way to get to that goal as efficiently as possible fascinating i, I i'm curious um what what was a what was a project that you really that you really enjoyed and you you almost maybe you wish that you could have kept hanging out <laughs> with the person that it was that it was it was that much fun well a couple of these people i've worked with have become friends of mine you know there's one guy i've worked with who's become one of my closest friends a guy named izzy paskowitz who was a world champion longboard surfer 
from a mightily f***ed up California surf family, a fairly well-known California surf family from the 60s. Uh, his father was a Stanford-educated doctor, Doc Paskowitz, who um, decided that the world was too much with him. He didn't want to be a doctor. Um, he kind of checked out and lived off the grid and raised nine kids in a camper. Kids never went to school. They weren't homeschooled. They were surf school. They bounced around. They vagabonded up and down the California coast and eventually across the Gulf and um, up and down the East Coast. Eventually, they went to Israel. They were the first. He was the first person credited with bringing surfboards into Tel Aviv and helped to establish the surf community there, which is wow. which is kind of cool. But as you can imagine, these nine kids were completely screwed up. Right, they they could surf. A couple of them became world champion. One of them became a world champion. Uh, they all worked in and around the surf industry, in and around the music industry. But it was an interesting story, and he became a, a good a good buddy of mine. The stories I really enjoy working on are the stories with people who are not used to the limelight. You know, people who might have been in the middle of something that is. Uh, book worthy, and they're not used to talking about it, and they're sharing their story with me in many ways, as if for the first time. And I'm thinking here specifically of um, of a New York City firefighter who was in the North Tower of the World Trade Center when it collapsed, and he survived. He was in the stairwell on the seventh floor or, or the eleventh floor, I can't remember which one, and the building just cascaded down around him. And when he kind of came to he thought his first thought was, oh, you know, I've been buried under a hundred stories of rubble, and now I'm going to have this slow, agonizing, suffocating death. But then all of a sudden, the dust cleared, and he saw a beam of sunlight, and he realized that he was miraculously at the top of the pile and not at the bottom of the pile. The stairwell had formed a kind of spire, and he clawed his way to safety. And and hearing, you know, that book was called Last Man Down. It became a big. Uh, uh, international bestseller, and it's really the only account from inside the towers uh, on 9-11, which is uh, kind of powerful and, and compelling, and people are still reading that book in a, in a meaningful way. And talking to him so soon after the towers fell was a profound and moving experience, you know. So, um, and part of the reason for that is because he was telling the story in a raw and fresh way. Wow. Um, so when you find stories like that, those are, first of all, it's an honor to help him tell that story and put it out into the world. But as a storyteller, it's it's kind of a gift. You have a rich resource in front of you that doesn't feel tired. And it hasn't been, you know, it's a story that hasn't been told and retold into the ground to where it almost becomes kind of cliche or right. lore in the minds of the storyteller. Um, they're discovering the story as they're telling it to you. Oh, wow. I'm buying that one tonight. That, that, sounds, <laughs> that sounds great. Uh, uh, so go, going back to, to when you were younger um, or when you first became interested in writing, I'd imagine you were a, a reader. That's what led you to writing. Uh, or, or maybe not. I don't know. Uh, tell me, what, what, what were some of the things? Was it nonfiction that grabbed you, like j journalism? novels what kind of grabbed you early on and, and that when in your life were you first kind of like hey maybe this is something i can do i was an avid reader as a kid and by a kid I, I guess i mean high school and i was reading um a lot of hemingway when uh when i was in high school and college a lot of mailer um when i was in high school and college uh, i also um kind of came of age uh, during the Watergate era, you know, that's happened during high school. So, you know, Woodward and Bernstein to me really were rock stars. And my first thought was that I would be a swashbuckling investigative reporter like them. That's kind of what I wanted to do. Um, so th those were the guys, you know, if I had posters on my wall when I was at school, it was those guys. It wasn't mm -hmm. Jimi Hendrix shredding his Guitar, lighting his guitar on fire. It was it was Woodward and Bernstein, or maybe it was maybe, actually what it was was the All the President's Men movie poster, yeah. <laughs> which, I, which I pinched from the movie theater where I was where I was an usher. But, um, so I always kind of wanted that uh, world. I wanted to be a part of that world, and I, I happened to be lucky enough to write well, or at least I wrote easily. It wasn't a chore to me. The words kind of flowed. I'm sure 
you probably had a lot of friends when you were in school who struggled and pulled their hair out over mm -hmm. a two-page writing assignment. For yeah. me, I would sit down and knock it out, and then I'd go out and have fun. And uh, so I thought, okay, I, you know, this this comes sort of naturally to me. Maybe I could find a way to mine that for uh, for a living. So by the time I went away to college, that was that was my plan. I was going to find a way to make a living as a writer. How the hell I was going to do that, I had no idea. And I certainly never jumped ahead and imagined that I would be working as a ghostwriter. You know, that wasn't even a thing to consider. Um, now it's a thing. I hear from young people all the time, gee, how can I be a ghostwriter? And I try to tell them, you know, without sounding discouraging, I want to be encouraging. I said, you know, it's a stupid thing to aspire to be. <laughs> and, and I don't mean to denigrate what I do for a living or the great works of some of my friends who do this and a lot of the guests that have appeared on my podcast, because some of them are enormously talented and they've built a great, rich, um, thriving body of work. But for, I think for all of us, it's it's writing of a second resort. It's a pivot. It represents a pivot of a kind. It's not the writing life we imagined for ourselves. And yet it's a writing life that's worked out great for many of us. So I tell people, don't aspire to do this thing. If this thing happens, that's great. It can be a happy byproduct of some other type of writing life. But if you set out to do this, you might be disappointed. Not everybody's wired this way to write for other people. You really do have to check your ego at the door. And and that's not necessarily consistent with the impulse that might drive people to write in the first place. Right. So this is the um, Balloon Dogs, your, your fourth novel? Is it It's my fourth novel, correct. Um, it's my favorite only because it's the most recent one um but I, and and i've published them every like six or seven years the the deal i kind of made with myself when i was a kid uh was i'd write one of mine and one of theirs once i became um once i embraced the fact that i was going to maybe do this ghostwriter thing long term i didn't want to cheat myself out of time to write my own books because that was still important to me so the one of mine and one of theirs model hasn't really worked out because you know, as I said, I've been lucky to to, uh, to succeed in this one aspect of my writing life, and I've got bills to pay. I have, you know, I had three kids. I had, there were orthodontia bills, there were summer camp bills, there, you know, there there's college tuition, there's all kinds of crap, and it's very hard to say no to a paying gig. Uh, so this is my fourth uh, book. They've all been published. The first one was published by a big house. Next one by a little slightly smaller house and this is a, this is a nice indie press in virginia i'm very happy to have a home there um and we'll see where the next one lands to me my idea of success as a novelist you know i always wanted to write the great american novel i wanted to be able to you know sit in my underwear and write books that i want and only books that i want um i recognized a long time ago that that might not happen for me so success for me the paradigm has shifted and and what i if a thousand people read this and that's enough for me to win another book contract to write another book and put that one out into the world that's a successful project for me yeah that's great you know yeah if people read it that's great i i talked to someone a while back and he's um had some notoriety and i i think i was just telling him how much like his work meant to me and yada 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 and and how like he's probably influenced so many people and he's like well he's like i think a lot of people have my books but i don't think a lot of people have read my books they look great on the <laughs> shelf so he's like you don't know people are reading this so the you know the fact that you know if you can if you can if you can get a thousand people is a lot of people you know <laughs> a thousand people is a lot of people i'd be very happy with a thousand people who took the time to read and found something to take away from this you know i guess right you know to be a writer you got to be a little bit full of yourself right and you got to <laughs> sure. think that you have something to say that other people either need to hear or that you feel entitled to uh inflict on them um <laughs> so it, it takes a certain amount of arrogance but uh if if a thousand people read this and find something to take away from it i i'll be very gratified that's cool. So tell uh, your thousand listeners, Kyler. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> um, yeah. Read, read this book, read balloon dog. 
maybe we could just talk briefly about process for novels because you know you you sure. we, we talked about ghostwriting um and how everything's different and this is your fourth novel um what is your approach to writing a novel is it kind of a a, a long term or does it come in a burst uh or you knock it out relatively fast um how do you approach a book um the answer is all of the above and none of the above right <laughs> so um they with me things tend to marinate for a while um so this idea for balloon dog about this art theft i had that idea maybe four or five years before i sat down to write this book and i i, I thought you know gee what would happen that seemed to me a good jumping off point for a book if a group of bad guys tried to steal an iconic work a, a massive sculpture in plain sight what happens next and so i noodled with that what happens next for a while and you know to say that i was working on it all that time is accurate but at the same time it's not accurate i was working on it when i was out for a run i was working on it when i was nodding off to sleep i was working on it on you know a long drive across the state of utah or across the great salt lake you know i'm working all the time when it comes to my fiction how do you make these little component parts fit together what are the themes going to be how how am i going to populate this story uh, with interesting characters what's going to be at stake for these characters when those things start to coalesce then i sit down and write but i don't write with an outline uh, and at that point, things do go fairly quickly. But so this book, I think I wrote it in a burst of maybe four or five months. And I'd get up, there was a dailiness to it. I'd get up every day and I would try to write, you know, a thousand words because that's what Hemingway used to do back in the days where he didn't have a word processor to, to count the words for him. He was actually <laughs> counting these words by hand and he would write down in his little journal how many words he did that day which I thought was kind of precious. but <laughs> So then I, when I get to that point, it happens at breakneck speed for me. And then I look up at the end, kind of breathless, and I think, okay, now what the hell do I have? <laughs> and then I let it sit for a little while and maybe marinate some more, and then I'll go back and look at it with fresh eyes a couple of months later and then see where the holes in the story are and what parts I need to shore up and where I might have gone overboard and – um, and then you sort of try to bring a little bit of polish to it. So for me, it happens in fits and starts and little bursts. Um, for other writers, it happens a little bit differently, you know? Yeah, it's almost like it, it kind of sounds how you said about like doing the research about someone you're going to work with for, for a ghostwriting gig. You, you, you know, you heavily do your homework. And so it's like when you, when you write a novel, it sounds like you're doing your homework in that way where it's marinating and 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 growing inside of you and then you just knock it you knock it out i think uh, that's exactly right the one difference though kyler is that this time it's all on me you know when i'm working <laughs> with somebody else our our driving pace is is as often as not set by them as by me mm -hmm. you know a lot of times you know these are busy successful people these are successful entrepreneurs or they're world-class athletes or um, you know, they're Oscar winning actors off on a movie set somewhere. They're not fully available when I need them to be available. So I, a lot of times we're stalled in our progress because I need them. They're my primary research resource. So there's only so much resource uh, research I can do. I need them. I need to go back to the, to the source. Um, and if I can't move forward in the collaborative work I'm doing, it's always nice to either have another project, because I like to keep a couple of these things going at once, uh, or maybe to have a piece of fiction of mine that I can noodle around with so I don't have an idle day where I'm just twiddling my thumbs doing nothing. <laughs> uh, so cool. So, okay, so people can find As Told By, that's the, the podcast, As Told By is on. As Told as told To. As Told, as told to, to, sorry. Yes. As Told To, apologies. Um, Pod, any podcast platform wherever um, wherever podcasts are sold it's on all the platforms <laughs> um and uh it, you can subscribe you can follow whatever i don't know where people get their podcasts these days but you know subscribe follow write a review tell your pals it's uh we come out every other week and uh it's it's actually been 
a lot of fun for a while. I thought we'd run out of people to talk to for the reasons I mentioned earlier, but now it's looking like we'll um, we'll have a rich, never-ending resource of, of people. I'm starting to hear from publishers who are sending me uh, guests to talk to. So you know you get a certain amount of traction when yeah. when when you're not just begging people to come on your show. Yeah. When people are asking in, you know, yeah. you know, you're finding an audience. Yeah, it's it's it can it snowballs. You do it for a while, and if people right. are, are liking it, it, it's it's a it's a cool thing. So I, I can't. We, wait to we had a, we had a great episode um, a couple of months ago. At this point, I, I always wanted to talk to a celebrity who wrote one of these books on his own without the crutch or the benefit of a ghostwriter. And Stevie Van Zant uh, had a book out, a rock and roll memoir that came yeah. out uh, last year uh, called "Unrequited Infatuations," which he you know quite proudly talked about writing on his own so i managed to chase him down and oh, wow. he was on the show and that was a fun episode so if you're looking for a place to start yeah start there that was a great episode oh um, I'm, yeah that's awesome that's so yeah. cool uh great well i think um i feel like we could keep going but let's um let's let's have you on another time this has been so much fun anytime the hour oh. flew by uh, which doesn't always happen. So thank you for that. This was really, really enjoyable. Wait, sometimes it's pulling, it's like pulling teeth, huh, Kyler? <laughs> Once in a while. I mean, it's, you know, but this was just so, this is like just a, a normal conversation. It was, it was fun. Uh, Balloon Dog, everybody, uh, check it out. I'll have links to, to where um, people can, can get this. Is there a specific, uh, like online shop or 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 or, or store anywhere that you prefer or you can buy it anywhere. anywhere if you buy it from i think it's indiebound.org um and you can do that through the portal of your local bookstore it's a great way to support your local independent bookseller uh but of course it's also available at amazon and barnes and noble and all the big boys too but um it's always nice to help out the independent booksellers sure. in your midst uh and if you want to buy a, a hard copy from your local indie bookstore and it's not on their shelves they'll be happy to order it for you excellent so yeah i'll put some i'll put some links to some of my favorite bookstores and um and then indie bound and yeah dan this was this was great this was so much fun thank you so much for being on the show kyler thanks for having me and uh i will stop by uh next time i'm in town and we'll but, go to Beer Bar. Beer Bar makes yeah, a cameo that, in this. That book. was in the book. I forgot to mention that Beer Bar. <laughs> I I love that that ice. Um, <laughs> yeah, tabletop there. That's a such a cool place. Uh, that sounds great, Dan. Thank you so much. Thanks, Kyler. Be well. Yeah.